Have you ever been old before? Has anyone you know? It's part of the cycle of life, and it happens to most of us. If you're over 65, getting there, or concerned about someone who is, this podcast is for you. Hosts Dr. Marilyn Lakin, Marie Sola, and Sarah Stacy, a multi-generational team of women, will help you redefine what it means to get older. We'll be bringing you the latest information and speaking with today's experts and pioneers. Best of all, we bring it to you from a place of understanding. Our goal is to create a library of knowledge and experience to help you or your loved ones navigate this phase of life to the fullest. We can't turn back the clock, but we can make sure we live our lives informed and on our own terms. There's a lot of confusion about the difference between palliative care and hospice. Today's interview is about palliative care. But before we discuss that in more detail, I want to take a minute to define the differences between palliative care and hospice. Palliative care is specialized medical care that focuses on relieving symptoms of a chronic disease Things like pain, anxiety, loss of appetite, difficulty breathing, and other symptoms. A palliative care team of professionals will visit people with a chronic disease, and this can be of any age. They can visit in their home or in a facility, but their goal is to improve the quality of life. This form of care is offered alongside other treatments a person may be receiving. People receiving palliative care often have illnesses such as cancer, severe heart disease, end-stage liver disease, kidney failure, lung disease, Parkinson's stroke, and other chronic illnesses. Palliative care specialists support active treatment for a disease. They refer patients for specialized care, and they explain the treatment that their patients receive. Hospice care is different. It also provides symptom relief, but it's for patients who are not seeking a cure for their disease and who have less than six months to live. This is often seen as end-of-life care. Hospice professionals work with patients and their families to ensure that they have the best possible quality of life at the end of their lives. Thus, palliative care is for those with a chronic disease who need some help to cope with their disease. Hospice is for those with a fatal disease who are no longer seeking active treatment or for whom treatment is not possible and who have less than six months to live. Today's guest, Johanna Williams, has been a community liaison for Four Seasons Compassion for Life since 2017. With over 25 years of healthcare experience, she specializes in providing community education surrounding the differentiation between palliative and hospice care. Her passion for this role includes maintaining a position of servitude while believing in the gift of being part of the end-of-life process. She currently lives in Asheville, North Carolina and loves the outdoors to decompress. 
Johanna Williams, thank you so, so much for agreeing um, to come on the podcast and talk to our community about hospice and palliative care, what that entails, what the differences are. And you are actually the community liaison for Four Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care, correct? Yes, that's correct. And thank you for having me. Yeah, well, uh, you know, for those of you listening... This is a very important, important subject matter, and Johanna has so much to share with you. So I hope that you'll, you know, maybe even take some notes or come back and listen a second time because there's a lot, there's a lot here, but it's really helpful. Uh, Four Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care, you, you full service, you do a lot of things. So you offer care navigation, home care, palliative care hospice and grief services as well. So we are going to focus today mostly on the hospice and palliative care, but it would be great if you could give us maybe a high level overview of the different services that are offered. Absolutely. So I'll start with care navigation. Uh, Clients and caregivers who really want options and information for optimal and, and really more of a realistic care given the client's needs and preferences and finances and support resources are the folks that we would be seeking to share how care navigation can help them navigate a new reality, navigate the healthcare system, assist with life transitions, really provide them with resources within their community that could be helpful to them with navigating those new realities, uh, advocacy and planning for the future educating um, what the options and treatment plans may be for someone, you know, with various procedures that are being presented and, and just looking at what your personal preferences and choices are and how they apply to making those decisions. And care navigation is, is something that anyone may desire having the assistance with because a care navigation nurse helps someone craft plans for, all of the what ifs and what will be uh, through their expertise and guidance and support for the clients they serve and also advocacy in terms of, you know, whether or not placement is a need within a, a different or higher level community education about the diagnoses that they may be living with, but also on-site assistance when need arises, maybe attending a primary care physician appointment with them. So that service is provided really anywhere that home is. And it's more of a convenience to answer those questions together through creating a a plan to collaborate on one person's needs and goals. And um, the why would be really just to navigate to the right care at the right time based on someone's personal preferences. And it is something that's paid for privately. We also have, because we are a nonprofit organization, we have uh, foundation funds that are available for those who need that and are not able to cover the, the cost of that. And when does someone decide to seek your services, Johanna? Uh, from my experience, honestly, immediately upon diagnosis of a life-limiting or chronic condition is best. And I say that because you may be receiving this information from your primary care provider and then sent to several different specialists to get the information that you need, labs done, certain procedures done, and having that neutral lens work with you to understand 
the information that's given back to you based on the labs or reports from your physician and, and really helping you line by line understand what's going on with you, with your body from a holistic perspective. To me, that's priceless because the time that a primary care provider or specialist often is usually between the average of 5 to 14 minutes. So you can imagine with a palliative provider's visit being anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half, there's quite a bit more ground that could be covered and, you know, information shared and a little bit more time to develop that intimate trust where, you know, your loved one feels comfortable sharing some of the concerns or their future end of life wishes or goals about the care that they're going to be receiving. So with the palliative care, it's really about helping patients manage their treatment, correct? Treatment, yes. Symptoms, um, making sure that as those advanced directives come into play, that if those need to be changed, tweaked, um, communicated to other family members, there are a number of different things that that responsibility entails. But having those conversations early and then the updates to them as things change based on symptoms is important. So Johanna, do people ever come off of palliative care and not necessarily go to hospice care? Yes. uh, So we've had individuals seek out our services to, based on their chronic condition, really to more establish advanced directives, to have those forms in place. The medical scope of treatment form is a bright pink form that a primary care provider can complete but a palliative provider can as well. So we've had individuals seek our services just for six months to have those advanced directives in place and complete, and that is an option. And if they are stable enough to not need a visit more than once every six months, we have they have agreed that discharging for now was best until the symptoms arise again or arise at all. Well, that's, you know, that's, I think that a lot of people maybe wouldn't understand that. So I think that's important for people to know. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I, you know, prior to this conversation I've had with you, I, I did not realize that uh, myself. And so somebody decides uh, to seek your services, um, whether it be for palliative care or hospice care, um, and, and maybe the process is different, but what is the process? Once somebody gives you a call, is, uh, what's the process for them actually getting on to palliative or hospice care? So with palliative care, individuals in the community can self-refer. For example, a loved one who may be considered healthcare power of attorney or a a person themselves living with a chronic condition, they can refer themselves to palliative care by calling our office and sharing that information that I would, I have, you know, have this condition, I was diagnosed with this, and I would like to be um, seen by your palliative care team. At that point, with their consent, we reach out to the specialist that they're seeing, request records, and once we obtain that information, a palliative provider is assigned, who is a nurse practitioner, is assigned to see that individual wherever home is. And that process approximately takes five to 10 days at the most through palliative care versus with hospice, we do our same day admissions. So with palliative care, the process would be we would receive that call if the individual were self-referring or we would receive that order and records from, say, an assisted living community or a skilled nursing facility or a primary care physician or specialist they may see the need to have that added support and send us records and a referral. And we then would contact the person over that individual to make sure that we have their permission and consent and schedule an appointment with them. 
And so that, and then hospice, as you said, that would be referred by not an individual, a person wouldn't ask for that themselves, but they would be referred from. Yes. So hospice, hospice requires that two physicians see that based on a person's condition and possibly the gradual decline and increase in need for symptom management probably warrants the possibility that that individual may not be here by Christmas, for example, or may have, you know, if there's sort of the question of you wouldn't be surprised if this individual didn't make it based on what you're seeing, weight loss, um, an inability to participate in activities, or sometimes even unwillingness, and other gradual declines, including cognition or maybe reports from an oncologist that the treatment options are no longer uh, serving a patient or the patient is no longer interested in those treatment options, then that physician would send us an order to assess for hospice with those records. And again, we would contact the patient if they're still cognitively able to make that decision for themselves or the healthcare power of attorney or next of kin to make sure that we had permission to provide that consult. That consult then occurs within 24 hours. And what it involves is a nurse going into the home or community where this individual lives and providing approximately the same amount of time, a one to two hour assessment that is a very careful review of medications, symptoms, and a collection of what that person or the family member's understanding of the individual's needs and end of life wishes. And that's kind of the goals of care conversation is we want to make sure that an individual and their or their loved one, that their understanding of the hospice philosophy is in line with no longer seeking curative treatment and that our team will come to them rather than them, you know, going out to seek those curative treatment measures. So it sounds like if there's a, if the patient can no longer make decisions for themselves, that the, the caretakers for that patient can actually contact you as well. Absolutely. We have that happen. I would, I would venture to say probably 50% of the time that there's a loved one whose healthcare power of attorney has gone into effect because an individual is cognitively not able to make those decisions anymore, or there's been some sort of significant event that has changed the person's capacity to really be able to sign for themselves. Um, and so, yes, loved ones contact us. Occasionally, there are patients who don't have any next of kin or any personal contacts and physicians may be the ones that are reaching out to us to provide the referral and the consent for that patient based on what they've seen. That's important information, too, because there could be people that particularly loved ones caring for somebody that don't know that there's extra help out there and, and they might not know that they can contact uh, palliative care and hospice themselves. Um And I know that you did touch upon this a little bit earlier on, but just uh, uh, sort of as a standalone, how are the various services paid for? So palliative and hospice are both covered by Medicare and Medicaid. However, palliative care is covered by Medicare Part B. Hospice is covered primarily by Medicare Part A. Um, And then individuals who have their own policy, say Blue Cross Blue Shield or younger individuals that may have other um, types of policies. Normally, each policy has a hospice benefit. Sometimes there are different copays associated if the individual is younger. 
And in those circumstances, if those individuals are not able to cover the additional copay cost, our foundation funds will cover that. But insurance covers both palliative care and hospice. So that's a, that's important for people to know too. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it's covered by plans uh, other than Medicare and Medicaid as well. So if somebody has their own um, their own private policy, they can still seek these services. So it, it it's actually um, it's very available for people who want to seek it out. And I know that there you've seen a lot of things change. You've been doing this for quite some time. What's the biggest thing that's changed in your role, Johanna? Um, I, you know, I feel like over the years, one of the biggest challenges was more the stigma and um, ideas associated behind hospice that, you know, an individual was just giving up, um, for example, or things that I've heard. I've heard people refer to hospice as euthanasia and that has been probably one of the bigger challenges because in, in my personal and professional opinion, I think we kind of live in a death denying culture. We're not as comfortable talking about it as, you know, many other cultures and that creates a barrier. And from in the six years that I've been working for a hospice team, I have found that death in my opinion is something that should be so unique and celebrated in the same way that we celebrate birth and life is you have this unique team of individuals who are assigned to help this transition for an individual be as smooth and as much as what is most important to them as possible. Everything down from the temperature of the room to whether or not they want music or silence playing, um, whether or not they you know want loved ones around them. If they don't have loved ones, our team being present for them. A number of different things that I just think are to be celebrated in that moment and to be with a person and to experience what that moment is like for an individual to take their last breath is is really wonderful. It's challenging, but it is it's wonderful and it's a beautiful privilege to be a part of that. What has changed for me within my role is I really enjoy looking for opportunities to answer questions like this that are about palliative and hospice care to kind of bridge that gap and help eradicate some of those, the rumors and the stigmas that are associated with what we do. As I mentioned before, um, I recently over the holidays was asked by someone if that was, if it was kind of similar to euthanasia. And of course that is a common misconception that when someone is placed on hospice, that they actually go to a place and being on hospice is a hospice team, an interdisciplinary team that comes to you. And there, some of those stigmas are associated with the medications that are used, but not every individual needs a medication like morphine um, or others, Haldol, um, Dilaudid. There are a number of different medications that people, you know, are concerned about based on the things that they've read or, or Googled. And those drugs are, are not always used until it's necessary or until the very active phase of dying when the body has already begun to shut down and stop its natural intake process of food. Then there are other times where, for example, a patient with COPD who's having trouble breathing, small amounts of morphine really can relax both the body and, and, and the lungs in a way that opens up and allows that individual to actually have quality of life while still spending time with family. And so the, the word morphine is often equated with death and dying. And the reality is, if any of us have been to the hospital and had a, a significant procedure done, 
the majority, I'd say a good 90% of us have had morphine before. We just didn't know it. And so the amounts of morphine that are used within hospice care are very minimal in comparison to what's used in a hospice setting, which is another misconception. So that is something that has changed within my role as I feel that over the last three years after um, loving my father and being and having him on hospice care for his end of life process is being able to personally experience all of the phases that a loved one may go through with uh, allowing hospice to be a part of their person's care team at end of life. I now really understand both with empathy what they're going through, the questions that are in their mind, the concerns that they have. And that has allowed me to be quite a bit more passionate about seeking out opportunities where we can have a discussion like this and really help people understand what hospice is and what palliative care is versus what it is not. So. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that you bring up, um, you know, some of the stigmas and myths because having, and I'm going to say having had the privilege of being with, at this point, several family members when they've uh, passed on, these are some of the same things they're doing in the hospital when you agree to take a family member off life support. I mean, the morphine, the Ativan, things like that. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that I, I never realized that hospice had those stigmas or myths attached to them. Are there other stigmas and myths that you have to talk to people about? Or Definitely. what are some of those? There's several. The first probably misconception is that you have to stop all medication um, and that you're not able to go to the hospital or have therapy or seek curative treatment of any kind. There are some curative treatments that are related to pain and symptom management that we consider palliative in nature that are approved. There are certain therapies that are necessary that we will approve um, through invoice payment to community therapists, several units to assess for safety, for example, or symptom management through a particular device. And with medications, there is a comprehensive medication review during the initial assessment. And there are some medications that are considered no longer necessary, but anything that is related to symptom management, um, for example, blood pressure medicine, if somebody were to stop that, the symptoms may be unbearable. So we always are looking at whether or not a medication is based on comfort. Now, there may be some, you know, different vitamins or certain things that we may look at a substitute for certain blood thinners that may not be considered what Medicare sort of looks at as curative in nature, that we may just try to find an alternative or a substitute because hospice does cover the cost of all medications. And so based on those Medicare regulations, we do have to look at what is considered curative or life prolonging. And there are some things, what I found with my father was that in that assessment, there were several errors that were caught based on him seeing several different providers. And so because those providers weren't communicating, having that additional pair of eyes over that medication administration record, we noticed that there were several things that needed to change that were causing muscle wasting, which was leading to his weight loss, which were causing dizziness and lightheaded spells and leading to falls. And so having one pair of eyes versus five different individuals was much more helpful, in my opinion, specifically in our situation, because they're not always talking, though sometimes the pharmacist is aware that all of these providers are prescribing and, and they may catch things. But we also have a very trained eye for some of those things that may be a little different than other providers. So Johanna, all things considered, what's the biggest barrier for people 
when it comes to palliative care and hospice care? I think my answer would be different, specific to palliative and then specific to hospice. So with palliative care, I think people equate palliative with hospice care. And palliative is not. It's much more, in my opinion, a form of navigation through the healthcare system, um, assistance with advanced directives and tough questions so that individuals and their families know what's most important to an individual. And then a much more comprehensive visit than one may be able to get with a primary care provider because there's an hour to an hour and a half. So the word palliative care often means hospice to many individuals, but, and, and I've referred to it as a hidden gem because, because of that people think palliative is hospice and they're like, Oh no, you know, my loved one isn't dying. We don't want palliative care yet, but you do, you want palliative care so that you have a nurse practitioner who's an extra pair of eyes for you for the patient, wherever they're living, to be an advocate for what's most important to them, to be an advocate for the care that they deserve to receive if they're you know, living in various communities. We want to work together to collaborate to make sure that we all have the best outcome through palliative care. So having that upon an initial terminal diagnosis or chronic condition, any diagnosis, congestive heart failure, COPD, um, sometimes even just diabetes, any forms of cancer, You want a provider who's a neutral voice to be able to explain to you what those options that are being presented to you, what they look like, what the treatment plan looks like, what the recovery time may look like, so that you can really make a well-informed decision based on neutral facts and not from the pressure of maybe, you know, a healthcare provider that wants to have a particular device placed or a particular treatment plan trained because of, um, you know, certain benefits to them as an organization if that procedure is done. So a neutral voice there is important. And then the biggest barrier for hospice personally, I think, is fear. Fear of the word, fear of death, fear of letting go. Um, As a daughter of someone who was ready to go, Um, those questions that were being asked of me in my father's last two months of life were really challenging. And being the person to make that decision for him when he was no longer able to make it himself, it can be scary. Um, Knowing that I had in writing all of his wishes and his personal preferences from him having been on palliative care before left me with a feeling of knowing that I had done the right thing and knowing that I had called our team at the right time when I did to share his symptoms and what was going on and that we transitioned to hospice at the appropriate time. Those are probably the the biggest barriers. Um, And in closing, I would say, referring back to a denial that death is around the corner or even just the view of it as being really dark and fearful instead of the possibility of it being a really beautiful moment and process together and a beautiful thing for all of us to experience together. And it is a privilege, the things that we experience together when we're with someone who's dying or part of the care team of somebody who is dying. It feels really wonderful to know that you've um, been a part of making sure someone was comfortable to that process. I have often associated hospice with Like for me, for example, I did not want to have a natural childbirth. I wanted to have an epidural. And in my opinion, that was the similar symptom management that someone may want with hospice care. It's you may in your individual passing want to pass naturally. That may be a beautiful passing and very peaceful, but it could also be based on a diagnosis, very painful, very full of anxiety, very full of hallucinations. And hospice care can help manage those 
symptoms in a way that an individual may be more comfortable in sleep um, through some of those uh, more negative experiences that the body goes through naturally. As in, you know, in the similar reflection back to childbirth, it's something that happens naturally. There are moments of extreme agitation that we call terminal agitation in the dying process. There are hallucinations for many, depending on their diagnosis. Um, you know, when, when the body is dying, based on the diagnosis, it can either be painful or not. It depends on the diagnosis. And so having those options available to one, I think, is important so that you can decide at the right time, it's time to manage these symptoms. I don't want to see this person suffering anymore. And at that time, there are certain medications that can be um, ordered and prescribed and administered that can help that process be as peaceful as possible. Yeah, so that palliative care actually really takes, it starts the process of taking into account how the patient and the family want to handle the whole process of treatment. And if that does include end of life, all of that. So it's not just somebody's thrown into the mix all of a sudden, and people are just kind of responding to it, correct? Right, right. There is, when someone's on palliative care first, there is a very thorough explanation to family and community about what's happening, what the progression of this person's disease is, what the trajectory looks like. And that advocacy is needed. And they are very candid and very real and difficult conversations. But it's also honoring someone's preference to have quality of life and, and quality, comfortable time with family over quantity. So they may not be interested in seeking curative treatment anymore through chemotherapy, but they do want to be comfortable to experience the time with their loved one or grandchildren or families in a way that they are not in pain and they're able to enjoy those last um, months together. And so the, the palliative care nurse practitioners uh, and and the team for palliative care, what did they do exactly? And like, how much time are they spending with the patients and the family? Good question. So nurse practitioners under palliative care and Medicare guidelines normally see patients approximately once a month. There are times that increases. There are times based on stability that decreases. So that pr nurse practitioner will schedule a visit with a patient and spend anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half looking at their medical record, looking at the symptoms that they're experiencing, looking at whether or not medications that have been implemented are um, providing satisfactory results and that symptoms have been alleviated. Um, but then that provider is also communicating back to family with permission of the patient and sharing with them what they've seen. Uh, and that sometimes is where the advocacy comes into play. A, a patient's family may want our palliative provider to add to the care plan for example, something that is their wish or something they've talked to mom or dad about that they'd like added to the care plan. And so we can advocate within a skilled nursing community for what a patient really wants, or we may collaborate with that patient's primary care provider to create and, and hopefully create the best outcome for the patient. So they're spending enough time with them to really establish, as I mentioned, trust and time, the time that it takes to establish trust and really understand to co-create a care plan for an individual that really meets their needs. Johanna, I imagine you have some very real conversations with people about end-of-life treatment and things that people are likely reticent to talk about. What are some of the important 
important conversations that you and your colleagues have with people around this. And within that same question, what are some of the responses from people once they learn that treatment is no longer an option? Because it seems like those things might tie in together. They are very real conversations. And, um, you know, the, the one that comes to my mind most recently is um, there was an individual who was probably considered eligible and appropriate for hospice. And the curative treatment plan that was in place was physically painful for her. And when we all discussed whether or not she wanted to continue with the various forms of therapy within the care plan, her response was, I'll try. I want to fight as hard as I can because when I see my grandchildren, I want to be here for them. But my pain levels during treatment are pretty high. And of course, those are the moments that pull at our heartstrings that are extreme tear jerkers, as, as my kids call them, where you know that the possibility of this individual really being able to, to perform the exercises that it really requires to get stronger are not likely. They're, you know, little bodies as we approach end of life, our, our muscles um, deteriorate. And, um, and then it's extremely uncomfortable when contractures happen, for example, trying to, you know, extend an elbow or fully extend your leg to try to ambulate. And so being present and just active listening individuals in that pain and that struggle that they are having with the decision is, is difficult because you can see from a, you know, maybe a clinical perspective or a clinical eye that our providers are seeing that it's probably not likely. That's the reason that a physician has made a hospice referral. But you see an individual really wanting to fight and you see a family wanting to encourage someone to fight or you have a family member who's just not ready to let go and is afraid to live a life without a loved one. And it can be really challenging to try to find the right words to say. There is nothing right to say. Active listening and being an ear and just silence is enough of a presence often in those moments. But there is a beauty in palliative care of having a provider say to someone, I know that you really, really want to get stronger. Um, and how do you feel about giving this another shot, another couple weeks, and then in a couple weeks, we'll revisit this and have this conversation again, and then decide if your preference is to be more comfortable when your grandchildren visit or, you know, something like that, for example, or you may have a patient who's been through several different forms of chemotherapy, and they still have, you know, a glimmer of hope that the next option may be beneficial to them. And, you all are scared at what you've seen this person's body go through and the pain and the struggle of certain treatments. And it definitely is the reason I emphasized what you said about real is it is very real and it is sad. There are times that we have cried with patients. There are times that um, we have, you know, cried with loved ones because we all, we get close to them as well. And we don't try to prevent that. We sometimes have to, um, you know, separate ourselves and cry later in the car. But, um, they are conversations that are necessary, and we just do our best to support what your individual and specific wishes are. If you, you know, want to seek curative treatment, we support that. If you want 
to have comfort care, we support that as well. So we really look and, and just do continuous deep dives into what the answers to those questions are for someone's goals of care. So you're really getting to know each person's story and how they choose to move forward or move on to the next place, which is so respectful. And there's something about having control about and having say so in how you leave this world that is so important in terms of the dignity that people must feel, right? Being able to have these Mm -hmm. conversations. And who's included in somebody's hospice team? Because earlier you mentioned that there's an entire hospice team. Like, who's included in that team? And how does that team work with their patients? So when someone is admitted to hospice, again, because hospice is not a place, hospice comes to you wherever home is, um, it begins with a nurse who typically is not the nurse who you will see on a regular basis for continuity. We have someone who does admissions, and then we have case management. So you have a case management nurse who sees patients at minimum once every two weeks, and then that increases as needed as we approach end of life. So it may increase to daily. Um, but to start with, it's on average once every two weeks. That nurse also has a nursing assistant who is able to provide um, showers, if showering, if standing to shower is still an option, or bed baths, if those are not, and some companionship and some other you know potential things that may be needed for support. There's also a team of on-call nurses and physicians after hours that are available to anyone who's on hospice. There is a uh, reoccurring clinical evaluation, both to assess symptoms as things change and progress, but also later to continue to determine eligibility. You have a social worker who is in constant communication with family, making sure that forms that are needed, that plans, um, that end-of-life plans and advanced directives are in place, funeral arrangements are made. Um, a number of different things there. So you have a social work who's in communication with both patients and family. And then you have some elective services, which would be access to music therapy for, for support, for symptom management, or even spiritual support. You have spiritual care through a chaplain. And you also have the opportunity with Four Seasons to have volunteer support. And those volunteers may, some of the things that I've seen them visit for may be a reading from a Bible. They may be singing together. They might be playing cards or knitting. They might just be conversation and companionship. Uh, they may be what's called 11th hour volunteers where someone really wants to have someone with them or a loved one is not able to be at bedside. So they would like for one of our volunteers to be with their loved one through those final moments and to be able to communicate back to them what those moments were like visually or um, may assist with FaceTime calls. Our whole team does that often. We'll assist with FaceTime calls to family if needed through our devices or theirs. Um, So it is a multidisciplinary approach. There's also several medical directors and nurse practitioners who oversee the care and the orders and prescriptions that are written. So it is, um, it's a large group of individuals that are all working together to make sure that all of these intricate little wonderful details about someone's end of life requests are honored and that their dignity is respected. Now, Johanna, you know, you've talked about the fact that palliative care and hospice care, like you treat people wherever the home is. 
But are there situations where somebody's on hospice when it makes sense for them to go to, I believe the term is a hospice house, is that correct? And what is a hospice house exactly? And when would it make sense for somebody to go there? The majority of hospice organizations have an inpatient unit to provide hospice care. Four Seasons has Elizabeth House. And normally, patients who are on hospice care who are receiving their hospice benefits at home, normally they only need to go to an inpatient unit if their caregiver is not able to provide the care and medication that they need for respite care, um, or they are going out of town and not able to, to take this individual with them. But there are also occasional times when general inpatient level of care is required. And what that is, is that wherever home is, the symptoms cannot be managed from home. So there may be breakthrough pain, there may be some pretty significant symptoms that are occurring that the medication management that is in place is not working effectively, and they need 24-hour nurses around the clock to figure out the right um, medication mixture. And But the goal is to get them back home as quickly as possible when that inpatient level of care is needed. But it does happen occasionally, I'd say probably roughly 6 to 8% of the time, so it's not that frequent. Um, but then the, the respite need is there. We also provide respite care in other skilled nursing communities that we have contracts with. So for example, if someone may be leaving town um, or is looking to potentially place someone in a higher level of care, they can, through their hospice benefit, have respite care for five days at a local skilled nursing community to kind of determine whether or not that place is a good fit for them. So, And that hospice benefit will pay that skilled nursing community for those five days that that loved one is there. And uh, it's it's one of the things that we love to share with our families because there may be a need for that higher level of care in order for everyone to be to continue to be safe. So if somebody is in hospice, or I should say on hospice, not in hospice, because as we've determined, hospice is not a location, um, let's say that something happens and they fall and they break a hip or a doctor recommends a medical procedure. How does uh, the hospice team work with you or what's, you know, how does that all work? So they are all situation specific. So for example, if someone fell and broke a hip, um, but they were still bed bound and there maybe wasn't a need for pain or they may not survive surgery. There may be a preference from the family to provide comfort care because they were in their last days and not have this person go through such an extensive surgery that they may not survive. There are times, though, however, that, for example, if someone fell and broke a bone and that bone was protruding, that they needed medical attention immediately. Four Seasons will send them out to have that procedure done and they'll come back home. If there is a treatment option that is needed that is considered curative and a family says, I've changed my mind, I really want mom to have this procedure, we will just simply revoke the hospice benefit until that curative procedure is complete and then determine if they are hospice appropriate and if their goals are still within in line with the hospice philosophy. So it, it does vary based on the situation. Typically, someone's choice to not go back out to the emergency room, but to have our team to come to them is more in line with the, the hospice philosophy and the goals of care because they want to stay home and avoid, you know, the potential exposure being out in a community like a hospital to other 
viruses um, or other things, but there are cases often that we do send our patients out to the hospital and sometimes where it's needed or required by a community. And so do people ever, and I don't know if this is the right word, but do people ever quote unquote graduate from hospice? Yes. Often we have folks who, you know, one of the things I've noticed is someone may have 27 different medications that they're on, right? And we do a comprehensive review of those medications and 20 of them may not be necessary anymore. And the symptoms from those medications were causing a number of different issues. And that person actually feels better, gets better, and they feel like they are, they're resuming more quality of life. And we celebrate that. We do call it a graduation from hospice to palliative care. We do try to encourage to continue to follow through palliative care so that we're able to, you know, continue to follow that disease process. But um, we do have patients who graduate from hospice care. So it, it could go back to palliative care if that is what makes sense. Yes. And what are some of the biggest fears and challenges you've seen people personally face at the end of life? I think the biggest challenge, and this I speak from experience because I've been on the other end of the phone or in the room with other people dealing with losing a loved one. But I personally, the biggest challenge for me was experiencing someone else having end of life symptoms that needed to be managed. And the relief that I felt when a hospice team was in place and medications were prescribed to help with that. For example, there is the term a death rattle which is really simply the pulled saliva in an individual's mouth who's no longer able to swallow. And the airway continues to breathe and that air continues to flow back and forth past that saliva. And the death rattle is simply the air going back and forth from that saliva. But it is, you know, an individual may choke um, or it just sounds disturbing to family. There are medications that we use to help dry that saliva up so that that's not happening for that individual. Um, but, but families feel this sounds that, that what they are hearing sounds difficult and traumatic and that it must be painful or um, the hallucinations that some people experience at end of life. You know, sometimes that's scary for families. Sometimes it's precious that they hear, you know, mom or dad is, is seeing loved ones who've passed on before them. And things that they're remembering or sharing, and um, they're very real for for those patients and for the families. And so, sometimes that is a challenge emotionally because you think or you know or you fear that this means you know within the next few weeks this person may not be with us anymore. And some of those create fears. Some of them are beautiful. Um, but I'd say to answer the question, what are some of the biggest fears and challenges that we see people face is um, being present with those symptoms, because sometimes they're not pleasant. There are certain diagnoses that are extremely painful, various forms of cancer as they progress. And um, that is really difficult for everyone involved to, to see someone in pain. So being part of the plan to alleviate those symptoms to me is beautiful. So Johanna, you have just been a wealth of knowledge, and I appreciate that you took the time um, to talk to us about palliative care and hospice care and everything that it is and what it isn't, um, and all of the time you just spent with us, uh, because I know you're busy. But before we leave, I have one last question for you. 
What is the most important thing or things that you wish people understood about palliative care and hospice care? So I would leave you with that it is a gift to offer and to suggest to someone. It is um, the hidden gem in it is that you have this huge multidisciplinary team that is available to both the patient and to you to explain not only the progression of someone's disease, but to also advocate for, again, what's most important to you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to stay up to date with our podcasts and content, visit our website at neverbeenoldbefore.com. Never been old, the letter B and the number 4.com, where you can also sign up for our email newsletter. Find us on Facebook at Never Been Old Before and give us a follow. We'd love to connect and hear your thoughts. Until the next episode, this is Marilyn, Marie and Sarah signing off.